So today is our last message in the Romans series on 6 through 8 in the Doctrine of Sanctification. It is by no means an end to the discussion of the Doctrine of Sanctification, but as far as it is contained in Romans, it is. And there's been a lot of stuff that we've covered through here. I hope that you've been able to see a, a theological foundation for the fact that when you're a Christian, when you've been born again, when, when, when Christ is true in your life, when, by relationship, that old things have passed away, all things have become new, the old man that was you, the old, I, it all, I can say old man, but I can't say old woman, because that just sounds horrible. That just, that just sounds bad. So, you know, but I would say the old you, okay, the old, the old you, the old nature has been killed, applied to the cross. There's a new man created, okay, according to righteousness. Now, he's not sinless. He still has the capacity to sin, but unlike the old dead man, he has this new resident of the Holy Spirit that is constantly growing him further into godliness, further into the holiness reflecting Christ. So while this new man can sin, he cannot stay there. The old man is fine there. The the new man is not there. See, so you've been given... And restored with this ability in Christ to sin and not to sin again. Rather than just being to sin. So you've been set free. And everything that is in Christ has been given to you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And then we finally progress and we've come up and we understand as, as Paul is, is closing out this line of thinking here in Romans that there's suffering involved in the Christian life. And we've talked a lot about how the suffering, when we talk about suffering as American Christians, because that's our context, it's vastly different than talking about the sufferings probably of that of the early church and that of other uh, Christians in other nations that don't have our same safeguards and freedoms. That their suffering is different. It's severe. Our suffering can be severe, but it's different. The point is, though, we enter into the sufferings of Christ as Christians. There is no such thing as a, as a sufferingless Christian faith. Just a heretical, quote, quasi-Christian faith that says there's no suffering. So we're going to be reading in Romans chapter 8 today. And I'm going to go ahead and skip there. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. In honor of God and His Word, let's stand together for the reading of the Word. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Notice there's a period there. Period. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is at even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, this comes out of Psalm 44 and verse 22, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, these are heavy, weighty verses. This whole section has just been tremendous with its the thickness of the theological truth of who you are and what you've done in Christ to those whom you redeemed, to the great promise that all things work together for good is exclusive to your people. But we have that promise. But also is the reality of suffering. But we have your promise. Lord, we pray now that your sweet, gentle, precious Holy Spirit would come and crush us. Because while he be gentle, he be severe and miraculous and uplifting, all-consuming fire. God, that you truly would find pleasure in our hearts seeking you today. And that you would apply the scripture to us. To our need. As we go through this sojourn of ours. On this lower world called earth. Be near. In Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I have been faithful. Through the whole time. To. Read to you the problem that we have, but today I've added something new. And, and it serves as a warning. The problem that I see, anyway, is a failure of 21st century Western Christians to understand and apply the doctrine of sanctification, which we know that means holiness, personal holiness. In their everyday lives. The result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever increasing conformity to the world around them. We we know that's what's happening. You should not try to look past it, you should see it for what it is, just sitting right there. Now it's not true for everybody. There is a good remnant. I'll tell you what, there's more of a remnant with us in this nation and in, and in what I call the Western nations of God's people than there were in the days of Ahab. There's more than 7,000. 
There is plenty to ignite a fire of revival and awakening. Plenty. But in the green, I had a thought and I wrote it down here. An unholy, lethargic, double-minded church will never receive anything from the Lord. Think about that. Now, James obviously says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And, of course, we know that double-mindedness refers to being two-souled or two-minded. You have two of you. you. You desire this and you desire that. A church, which is made up of its individual members, will never receive anything from the Lord as long as they're like that. But notice the semicolon. Love semicolons. When will enough be enough? When when will the remnant say, it's got to stop? It's enough. It is time to seek the Lord. I'm going to read to you out of Isaiah 55. Every time I think of saying Isaiah, I think of the Scottish preachers that I heard. And they always say, Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Does that preclude the idea that maybe there's a time coming when he won't be near? Yeah. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I don't see anything I'm reading here that doesn't encourage us to pursue The holiness and righteousness of God's everlasting love and mercy. Do you? I mean, it says right there, He will have mercy on him if he returns. He will abundantly pardon. There's no reason to stay distant. There's no reason to stay aloof. Well, there's one more. Hosea. Chapter 10. Verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. So if we. If we set out. To sow righteousness. By living lives that reflect. Christ in our life. Now I didn't say perfection. Don't don't confuse. And muddy the water. Of God's challenge to us to live holy Christ-like lives. Was somehow thinking you got to cross over into perfectionism. Because then you'll butcher the whole thing. Okay. We just went through the litany of theological truth. Of Romans 6 through 8. Okay. But Hosea says. Reap in mercy. Now who wouldn't like some mercy? Break up the fallow ground. Of your heart. 
For it is time to seek the Lord. There it is again. Till he comes and reigns righteousness on you. Now notice there's a descriptor after it says it is time to seek the Lord. What's the descriptor? Until you seek him until. Which precludes the thought that there's going to be a lapse of some considerable time. Some amount of time that God himself has has called. An amount of time. Until he comes. And what does it say? He rains righteousness on you. This is what I want. I want it personally. And I want it for our church family. And I want it for all of God's people. In every single part of this entire country. And this entire hemisphere. That's what I want. I, I, I do not... Consider for a moment that though the judgment of God has fallen upon the Western nations, ours included, that somehow that means that there can be no outpouring upon his people. That has never been the case, ever. But it does necessitate the fact that in times past, God has done such a thing as that. When God's people have enough, and they say, I'm going to go this far. I can't go any further. And I will do what I can do in my own individual life. God, begin here, begin with me. Revival is simply a lot of those little times collectively with all, all, all of us together. God among us. I love sometimes to see when the, on the rare occasion that it rains... And on the hood of the truck sometimes or the windshield, you'll see water droplets. And they're all over scattered, right? But then what happens when they get close to each other? They join up. And, and then, of course, the bigger they get, the more they suck into them. And the, the little water droplets will... I'm sure there's a scientific term to that, right? And it comes together and it makes this... Big mass of water. And that's what revival is. When will enough be enough? It is time to seek the Lord. I can go ahead and I think I have freedom to tell you this. That uh, I have been busy. Super busy. uh, Preparing our material for January. There are four sermons that Richard Owen Roberts has preached that are so powerful and so good and so needed that I'm making a listening guide. I'm basically transcripting the whole things, all of them, and putting and filling the blanks at every marker, writing it down so you can hear them. And, and, his, and his outline is as follows. Something is wrong. Something must be done, something must change, and something must happen. And I figured out at the end what it is. I know what needs to happen. I know what needs to happen. And I know what it is we've got to do. I know what it is. And it's way bigger than us. And it involves more than us. 
But we'll get to that later. In Romans then, as Paul is finishing up this section, he asks seven questions in response to the promise of Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And then he talks about what we call the ordo salutis or the order of salvation from before the foundation of the world. This is an exclusive promise to God's elect people. After saying that, it makes sense how when we pray in the Spirit, we know we're heard because all things work together for good. So God is working that out. And when we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to in our suffering, because remember, you cannot subtract the, the, the promise of 28 through 30 from the context of suffering. But then he gets through that and he says in verse 30 then, verse 31, there's seven questions through the, through the end of this passage. What then shall we say to these things? And to me, it's just a, well, well, what do you say, right? What can you say when it's all been said and it's all been said so well? And, and what can you say when what's been said is so powerful and so uplifting and so encouraging and so certain? What can you say? So I say, how about hallelujah? hallelujah. There you are in suffering. Now, now remember... As Paul asks question 30 in verse 31, question 1, you have to look at verse 36 because it says, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Suffering is part of our reality. And it could be worse for us. And in some places it is worse. But he says, What shall we say to this battery of Scriptural authoritative truth about what God is doing and what He's done and what He's doing and what He's doing in us who love Him. What's He say? What can we say? In spite of it, in spite of the struggle, what can we say? Hallelujah. The things to which Paul is referring to begin all the way back in chapter 5, and there's no greater summary answer to Paul's question than to God be the glory, which reminds me. Of number four in JT's hymnal. To God be the glory. I'm going to read this. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Does everyone remember? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give Him the glory, great things He has done. And then he goes on. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes the moment 
From Jesus our pardon receives. And then he says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to who? The Father, through Jesus the Son. And give him the glory. Great things he has done. And lastly, great things he has taught us. Great things he has done. And great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our victory, when Jesus we see. You tell me that there ain't a lot we can say. Well, well Paul says, well, what shall we say to these things? And Hallelujah. What else can you say? To God be the glory. What else can you say? Question 2, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, well, you know, technically, this is from Walvard and Zuck. How would you like to have a last name of Zuck? But they write, obviously, Satan and his demonic host are against believers. We read about that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in the heavenly places and so on. But they cannot ultimately prevail and triumph over believers. Why? Because Romans 8, 28 through 30. It's, uh, God said so. It's a divine edict of preservation. You're under the sun. You cannot be lost. You cannot be destroyed. You can be downtrodden and, 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 and you can be uh, weakened, but you cannot be consumed. It is against the very will of God. And so, God is the self-existent one and the sovereign creator. And since he is for believers, no one can oppose believers successfully. No one. The emperors of Rome even had to give way from just killing them to trying to make them reject the faith. That even that failed. You see, there's this little thing called paying attention to Scripture. You're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. Well, then whose are you? You're God's. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. You see how the, how the holiness comes back to it? Holiness is the distinction of saints. We don't always do well. But it's been declared. You will finish well. Because the very name of God is applied. I like what Chrysostom says. Yet those that be against us so far as they from thwarting us at all. That even without their will they become to us the cause of crowns. Think what he's saying in a very elevated language. The more they try to kill us, 
the more crowns they supply us. It's, he says, and they procure, they are our procurers of countless blessings. In that God's wisdom turns their plots into our salvation and glory. See, he says, how really no one is against us. <laughs> That's what I think, too. Really? I listen to a lot of sermons. A lot of them. And I listen because I need them. I was listening to one yesterday. I don't even remember the preacher's name. It's all on sermon audio. And he was talking about a man that when he had went to Scotland, he heard him preaching and he was an old, so very good preacher. But he had had a church when he was younger. There was a blacksmith in his church. So this is a fur piece back. Big old boy, as you would expect a blacksmith to be. Six foot something, 200 and something pounds, swung a hammer, big beard, you know. And uh, he said, I, I, I saw this man, this, 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 this power of a man. And it was a believer. Get cancer. And he went down. Little, little on the negative side of a hundred pounds. And I went by to see him one day. The old preacher said. He said when I walked in. I saw his lips moving. And I knew he was praying. He said so I went up to him. I said having a particularly hard day brother. Oh No. I'm just thanking God that I can suffer like this. Because you have no idea how near he is to me. What do you say to that? We see through a glass dimly. And about the only way I can reconcile that verse in my little bitty mind. Is to think about what happens in that bathroom in there when the light goes out. Now you're in front of that mirror washing your hands, and it's on a timer, and the light goes out. You can see stuff, but dimly. <laughs> but you can see it. You can see where the light's coming from in the mirror, dimly. And I think the closer that you get to Jesus in this life, the brighter and more distinguished that light comes. I think. I think that when you read your Bible and you behold the face of Christ looking back at you, that light becomes even brighter. And I think the more you yield and you confess your sins and you cry out for mercy, and the goodness of God descends upon your life. The nearer to heaven you draw. The less you want of this. That's what I think. And you can't wait. To be there unfiltered. 
So I would ask the question again. Well, if God is for us, then who, who, who can be against us? He who sits in the, leaven, in the heavens shall laugh. And he shall hold them in derision. While they say, come, let's figure out a plan to cast off the restraints. Yeah, you go try that. Question number three, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He who did not spare his own son. But delivered him up for us all. If God went to the trouble of doing all of that. How will he not also with Jesus. The son. Freely give us some things. All things. Well let me tell you what saint. You may not have all that you want. But you've got way more than you need because you've got all you have. Because you've got all you need. When you have Jesus, you have more than enough. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 reminds us that as Peter's speaking, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name. Uh, I'm sorry, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me tell you this. Reading your Bible. As a daily discipline is gaining the knowledge of God, which says you get grace and peace from and it's multiplied to you. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I looked up the word godliness and it's Eusebius something, it's Greek word, but it means piety. Now, we don't normally use the word piety unless we're talking about the Puritans. So, let's try this. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and piety. What was our problem statement about? Do you remember it? I've only read it for 15 weeks. No holiness. But it says right here that God has given us all things that pertain to life and piety. Through the knowledge, there it is again, the repeated theme, the knowledge of God through the word of God who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us, notice the words, exceedingly great and precious promises. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. That's the difference. Between the new man and the old man. You've been made a partaker of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So the question then comes back again. It seems superfluous a bit. Well, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Oh no, he's, he's going to give it all right. It's like saying, I'm thirsty and I pull out a fire hose and say, open up. That's exactly what it's like. Question four. Number 33. Who shall bring a charge 
against God's elect. Because now remember, we're talking about suffering. We're talking about the Roman world. We're talking about the church there being persecuted under Nero and around the empire. Who's going to accuse you of wickedness? Well, it is God who justifies. So, when it comes to this temporal thing we're dealing with here, and we're called before the tribunal, who really is going to accuse that man, that woman, that, that boy or girl, that child who's come to Christ, whom Christ is effectually called? Who's going to say to them, you're guilty? When the judge of all the earth says, I find no fault because the blood has been applied. They can say all they want to. Uh, it reminds me of our, the book we went through. You remember Dane Ortland's work? Gentle and lowly. He says, yes, we fail Christ as his disciples. But his advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins. His advocacy speaks louder than our failures. All is taken care of. When you sin, remember your legal standing before God because of the work of Christ. But remember also your advocate before God because of the heart of Christ. He rises up and defends your cause based on the merits of His own sufferings and death. Your salvation is not merely a matter of a saving formula but of a saving person. Have you ever had anyone pursue you? If you're a woman and and you're married, you probably have. Okay. But have you ever had a friend pursue you or a spouse, whatever? I remember, man, when I saw Rindy in the moonlight that night and she didn't know me and I just saw her from a distance, I thought an angel has just stepped out of heaven, rode a ray of light down to the earth and is somehow sitting in a Chevy truck. It's, it's indelibly stuck in my mind. I have been in hot pursuit ever since. <laughs> to, to my detriment in the early days. Not realizing that she's not a morning person and I am. And so when I went to feed the cows. I'd go extra early so I could feed the cows. So I could go by her house and knock on her window just to see what she's doing. And she didn't like that very much. But something must have been good about it because coming up soon it'll be 29 years. So I'm just saying, Jesus pursues us. You can't get away, you see. John Bunyan wrote, Satan had the first word, but Christ has the last. Satan must be speechless. After a plea from our advocate. Yes. Number 34. Who is he who condemns? Really. It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who makes intercession for us. So. Who. Is he. Who condemns. The answer is, John 5, 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. Now, this is where this gets really interesting, as Kim would say. She says that a lot. This is interesting. 
There's a bit of English in it. There's a bit of it's going to get interesting. So, who is he who condemns, right? Jesus is our intercessor. And yet it says in 522 that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Okay, he's my judge. Acts 17 says, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. And then, here's the deal. The thing is, for us, for the believer, our judge is also our advocate who also happens to be our Savior. You can't lose. Why would anybody want to go down a religion road when they can have Christ Himself? It just boggles my mind. I mean, how can you not be brought to humility with a thought like that? Our judge serves as our advocate who is also our Savior. You remember that next time you're pushing peanuts with your nose and the devil's got you down. Question 6 and 7. I kind of compiled these down in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, well, there's another one of those questions. All who think they're big enough and bold enough and bad enough to think they can do that step forward. Even all of hell sets in utter astonishment that no one can. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And there's also the second question. Shall these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, can they? John Whitmer wrote, In the early days of the church, one or more Christians were martyred every day or faced the possibility of it. Their persecutors valued Christians' lives as nothing more than animals to be butchered. Now, let me read to you from church history. This is a story about Perpetua and Felicitas. She was a young woman, or she was a young, well-to-do woman, nursing her infant child. Her companions were the slaves, Felicitas and Revocatus, and two other young men. We talked about them today in church history. They were catechumens. They were ones who were going to be baptized. Their crime was they had converted under the emperor Decius. And it was illegal to convert. And they were now going to be tortured for Christ. Or no, this was, I think maybe this was under Septimius Severus, my, my mistake. A great deal of the text of the martyrdom is placed on the lips of Perpetua, and some scholars believe that she may actually have spoken most of these words. When Perpetua and her companions were arrested, her father tried to persuade her to save her life by abandoning her faith. See, it, this is how the enemy works. She answered that just as everything has a name, 
and it is useless to try to give it a different name, she had the name of Christian, and this could not be changed. The judicial process was long and drawn out, apparently because the authorities hoped to persuade the accused to abandon their faith. Felicitas, who was pregnant when arrested, was afraid that her life would be spared for that reason. Or that her martyrdom would be postponed and she would not be able to join her four companions. That was her concern. But the martyrdom tells us that her prayers were answered. And that in her eighth month she gave birth to a girl who was then adopted by another Christian woman. Seeing her moan in childbirth, her jailers asked how she expected to be able to face the beasts in the arena. Her answer is typical of the manner in which martyrdom was interpreted. And here's what she said. Now my sufferings are only mine. But when I face the beasts, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. The account then reports that the three male martyrs were first to be put in the arena. Saturinus and Revocatus died quickly and bravely. But no beast would attack Secundulus. Some of them refused to come out to him, while others attacked the soldiers instead. And I just have to say, "Mm." (laughs) Finally, Secundulus himself, Secundulus, is standing there watching this. He declares himself that a leopard would kill me. And so it happened. We are then told that Perpetua and Felicitas were placed in the arena to be attacked by a crazed cow. Probably a Holstein. (laughs) Having been hit and thrown by the animal, Perpetua, now this is something. Perpetua asked to be able to retie her hair. For loose hair was a sign of mourning. And this was a joyful day for her. Finally, the two bleeding women stood in the middle of the arena, bid each other farewell with the kiss of peace, and died by the sword. So, when you read verse 36, for your sake we are killed all day long and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But you go back to verse 28 Know that all things work out for good to those who love God and are called according to the purpose. And you read the seven questions following 31 down through 35. You understand there's a much bigger picture here. They're all looking through the keyhole. We are looking with our eyes in heaven. Verses 37 to 39 to finish. What does it say in verse 37? Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. The Greek word here is hupernikeo. Nike is the word we get victory from. If you wear a Nike shoe and you have a swoosh on it, that's what that means. Hooper means, it means a beyond, past. So you are above or past victory. You're beyond victory. You are like super victory. 
He says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than, con- more than victory, Brian. We're more than victory, Dan. We're more. That's beyond it. And then he says to finish in verse 38. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He didn't leave anything out. So tell me, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. The process... Robert Mounts writes of sanctification is intended to bring us into conformity with the nature of our creator. Do you understand this? This is important. As we go forward and we're seeking God in biblical heaven sent revival and power from on high to finish our mission well, to seek to conform, to be conformed to the image of Christ, this is a conformity with the nature of our creator. And although it may at times involve some serious pruning, John 15, Hebrews 12, we may be sure that the love is at work on our behalf. We are forever united with the one who is perfect love. Now what does the Bible say perfect love does, if anyone can remember the rest of that scripture? It casts out all fear. doesn't mean we don't have our moments but that new man can't stay there he's got a new nature you see he can sin but he's he's also able not to and he's compelled towards Christ and Christ is what he wants and Christ is what he desires and Christ is all he'll ever be satisfied with and it gets so to the point that he can't wait to just simply be with Christ that old hymn comes back and it's in the book This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Lastly then, to finish this, and this is it. Out of Ephesians 5 in an admonition given to husbands and how they should love their wives. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify, there's that word again, and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now notice the reason. Here's why. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. What is, what, what is God's will for your life in the way that you should be distinguished? From, from what's in the green here, what is it? That you should be having no spots or wrinkles. That you should be holy. And without blemish. How you doing? 
How are you doing? We've only just begun this journey. Because I feel like for me personally, I can't speak for y'all. I finally get it. I'm finally seeing what this is all about. I get. I know why Christ saved me. I know what I got to do. I know who I want to be. I know where I'm headed. And I can't wait till it all gets done. I know who I want to show. It's the essence of being the ambassadors we are. This is all for Christians. If you don't know Christ, you've got none of this. Christ is worth more than anything this world has to offer you. Turn from your wickedness. Repent of your sin. Cry out for mercy. Christ will save you. Christian, it's time to go farther.